three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And, uh, <laughs> as you know, it's been quite a while since I've posted a podcast here. However, uh, I was recently reminded about the fact that most of our listeners don't really know what's up with the salon. Well, the salon is alive and well. It's just the podcasts that have uh, fallen behind a bit. You see, uh, the Psychedelic Salon began back in 1999 with uh, four of us using some secure audio tech that I had access to, and we talked about psychedelics. Those four people were myself, Wild Bill Radizinski, Dr. Tom, and Nick Sand. That was when I bought the PsychedelicSalon.com URL, but it wasn't until March of 2005 that I began the podcast from the salon. The salon itself, however, is uh, very much alive and well. In fact, there are over 250 recordings of our live salons posted on Patreon, and all those have taken place since the pandemic began. And yes, I know that it costs a dollar a month to access Patreon, but uh, those 300 supporters on Patreon are the core of the salon, and they're the ones who are keeping me from, uh, <laughs> from becoming a Walmart greeter or something like that just to make ends meet. So I do my best to give them a few extra things in return for their support. And, uh, well, you may be surprised at the conversation in some of these live salons. We not only have uh, learned a lot about a wide variety of psychedelics, we've also been uh, entertained with stories about hanging out with William Burroughs and doing acid with Albert Hoffman, not to mention the uh, recent fear and loathing adventure in New Orleans. To say the least, uh, these are really entertaining salons. But recently I was reminded that most people still only know about the salon through the podcast. It was on a recent episode of the Joe Rogan podcast when he was talking with Graham Hancock that my name came up, and Joe wondered if the salon was still around. But to me, the subtext sounded like, is Lorenzo still alive? (laughs) So I thought that I'd better do another podcast just to let you know that I'm still here. But uh, I have to admit, 2022 did bring that into question. In April of last year, my wife and I came down with COVID, and in May, we had to move to another apartment. In August, I turned 80, and as a side note, I turned 80 on the exact same day that Joe Rogan turned 55. And then in November of 2022, my wife and I came down with a new strain of COVID. So uh, this year has uh, more or less been a recovery year, and for what it's worth, I feel that I'm now in better health than I was when I was in my 50s. I seem to have slowed down a bit and have shorter periods of concentration, but I don't think it's long COVID. I think it's simply because I'm now 81 years old. The headline is that, uh, however, you're stuck with me for at least another 10 years. That's my firm belief. Now, on with today's podcast. I was given this tape by my good friend Mac Larson, who also gave me some other old tapes of several elders who are no longer with us including some Terrence McKenna talks that I haven't heard before. But this tape that I'm going to play for you right now is perhaps the most historic of the lot. Mac dropped these tapes off as he was on his way to the Mega Psychedelic Science Conference that was held in Denver this past summer. So it seems appropriate that I should begin playing his batch of tapes with another psychedelic conference, one that took place over 30 years ago. 
The conference was held during April of 1992 in Santa Cruz, California. The list of speakers at this conference was astounding, and on this tape alone we're going to hear Bruce Eisner, Oscar Janiger, Albert Hoffman, Laura Huxley, and Francis Huxley, as well as others. This is a lineup of speakers who have made major contributions to the rekindling of the psychedelic movement, and uh, this lineup may never be surpassed. But please don't think that I'm playing this uh, just to contrast with the incredible job that Maps and Rick Doblin did with the Denver Conference. You see, this 1992 psychedelic conference was also produced by my old friend Rick Doblin. <laughs> and uh, here are the speakers that you're about to hear in this recording, which is tape one of three, by the way. They are Matthew Brederick, Bruce Eisner, Rick Doblin, Oscar Janiger, Albert Hoffman, Humphrey Osmond, John Bresford, Laura Huxley, and Francis Huxley. And as we listen to this recording, I suggest that you notice how much focus there was on the war on drugs, and contrast that with the Denver conference, where the focus was on the science of psychedelics. In my opinion, this is an indication that our side is actually winning this war on drugs. So, let's listen now. Welcome to the summit, the Psychedelic Summit. Like all anniversaries, excuse me, uh, this is a bittersweet occasion, not to mention the seating problem we've been having tonight. Uh, outside this theater, and probably inside too, the drug war continues. And the first casualty of war, as we all know, is the truth. It wasn't until I took LSD for the first time that I started asking fundamental questions about the world. Questions like, why does the economy have to grow? <laughs> and why, even though I'm only 24 years old, does it feel like I've been alive forever? I also looked into the story of this remarkable drug, the 60s, uh, Timothy Leary, Ken Kesey, Albert Hoffman, the father of LSD. Whether or not Albert Hoffman's discovery of LSD-25 was an accident, it is no accident that there are over 2,000 prisoners of consciousness serving long jail terms at this very moment. I spoke to one just the other day. His name is Ron Yarborough. I spoke to him Sunday morning, which was Easter morning at 8.30, uh, after the interview, he left with his mother and his girlfriend to drive himself to Arizona and turn himself in to serve a 10-year jail sentence for LSD. The sentences are based on the amount of LSD sold. The amount sold is based on the carrier weight. This is one of the issues we've been very concerned about. Uh, whether your LSD is on paper or in sugar cubes or in orange juice, they actually weigh the medium that it was transported on and use that for their sentencing guidelines which enforce a mandatory minimum 
of 10 years for 10 grams or more. That means mandatory without parole. And so while we celebrate and mark the occasion of 50 years of LSD and express our hopes and dreams for the future in the next 50, we must not lose sight of the prisoners of this ludicrous drug war. And I'd like to just read a letter from one of them. Uh, this is one of many that I've been looking through in the last... You know, I've educated myself about this issue in the last two weeks. I've taken a crash course in it, and uh, I think that it's one of the biggest scandals ever. But uh, there are tables outside. I do believe Citizens for Equal Justice are here tonight. A great group of people run by Barry and Connie Dumont whose son, Levon, is serving a 16-year sentence. But let me just read this letter, and let's let the evening carry on. And it's, To whom it may concern, my name is Jason Cohn, and I have recently been sentenced to 10 years in federal prison for 12.8 grams of LSD, 20 sheets. I am now 20 years old and reside in the federal prison camp at Eglin Air Force Base, I received your name through a friend here, and I'm writing to you because I'm curious about what your organization is. Uh, the organization is uh, Citizens for Equal Justice. And how you're planning to make a change. There are about 15 to 20 LSD cases here at Eglin, and we're all keeping our fingers crossed for change. Please write to me at this address. If anybody has a pen handy, I'll just say it really quickly. Jason Cohn. 90065-011 P.O. Box 600 Dorm 3 C17 FPC Eglin E-G-L-I-N Air Force Base, Florida and the zip is 325427606 You can come to me at the intermission and get all that the letter continues, I am eagerly awaiting word from you. If it means anything to your cause, none of the LSD cases here have any prior record, no weapons in their possession, and are all under the age of 25. Even I am not the youngest here. A kid arrived last week that just turned 19, and another the same week that just turned 20. Sincerely, Jason Cohn. P.S. I lived in Santa Cruz for a while, and I'd like to be free to come back before my release date, 2001. What can I do to help the cause? Say hello to the trees and to the ocean for me. I dream about them every night. Help us. Eisner, and uh, I just wanted to see how many of you out here uh, rode your bicycles up to, uh, <laughs> well, uh, for those of you who didn't, uh, I didn't either, but uh, when I was a student here back in uh, 1977, 1978, 1979, I rode my bicycle up here a few times. Um, it was during that time as an undergraduate that uh, 
I helped uh, organize a conference called LSD a Generation Later, and we brought uh, Albert Hoffman, the discovered LSD up here. Uh, Hoffman uh, gave a talk about his uh, discovery that night, and uh, there was actually 5,000 people all hovering around. It was an amazing uh, event. Um, now, um, today marks the uh, 50th anniversary of uh, the day that LSD was discovered. LSD was discovered in the middle of World War II. It was almost the same time as the uh, atomic bomb was discovered, and it was on exactly the day of the uh, Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in Poland. Uh, its uh, discovery represented the uniting of the mystical and shamanic traditions of the uh, ancients with uh, modern technology and made the mystical experience available to large numbers of people for the first time. Uh, people such as uh, Alexander Shulgin, Timothy Leary, and others have suggested that LSD's discovery was a natural counterbalance to this discovery of this uh, destructive force of, uh, of atomic energy. Here we, we could blow ourselves up, and, and now we have this, uh, this tool which could, uh, could uh, tip the psyche the other way. Um, however, it wasn't until uh, almost, uh, well, actually more than two decades later, that LSD was uh, more widely used. Earlier on, it was used, uh, of course, by the Army and by research. And it was in the midst of the 60s, uh, in uh, actually 25 years after LSD was discovered, 25 years ago, that I took my first LSD uh, trip, had my first LSD experience. And for me, the uh, LSD experience was a, a remarkable spiritual uh, experience. It's something that guided me in all of the time uh, since that, that point. And although I've done many other things since then, it's always, always stayed with me. Um, it was uh, eight years after I first took LSD that I found myself uh, on a bridge on the Rhine River uh, with uh, Dr. Albert Hoffman, as he uh, pointed out the, the route that he, he took his bicycle ride from, uh, actually it was a smaller building, it wasn't the huge uh, Sandoz Towers that they have there now, but a small building beside it to his uh, home in the suburbs. He rode his bicycle every day. He was uh, uh, ahead of his time in the ecological movement. And uh, um, uh, then uh, it was the next year that we, uh, we did this conference, LSD Generation Later. Um, it was a dream of mine in putting that conference together to bring together all of the diverse uh, figures in the psychedelic world, uh, many of them staking out their own claims of fame and, and uh, uh, writing books and so forth, but never really having not got together for, for a decade. Uh, since that time, uh, there's been a number of uh, conferences. Uh, uh, two years ago, many of you might remember that uh, Island Group, uh, which is the group that I represent, uh, helped organize the, uh, the Bridge Conference at Stanford University. And uh, um, it was, uh, that, was a, that was an amazing event. And, and uh, afterwards, uh, people said to me, well, when are we going to do the next one? And I uh, offhandedly remarked, well, it would probably be on the 50th anniversary of Discovered LSD. It was uh, a couple of years away, and I didn't really want to have to deal with all of the, uh, the organizational craziness that these things uh, puts you through. But uh, here, here we are. Here we are together again. And uh, um, and with the uh, celebration of LSD's discovery, uh, I also hope to bring together um, representatives of 
three of the major organizations that have been working uh, to educate and uh, to, uh, to promote research uh, in, the, in the world of psych uh, psychedelics, uh, Island Group, uh, uh, MAPS, and the Albert Hoffman Foundation. Well, it was a rocky road uh, with all of us working together, but uh, here we are to get together today on the podium, united to honor uh, the discovery of this catalyst, which uh, brought us to the, uh, the state of consciousness to do all of these things in the first place. Uh, so now, I'm happy to introduce uh, my partner in the creation of this event, along with uh, Matthew Brenner, who uh, just spoke, uh, worked long and hard uh, to uh, get us all here. Uh, Rick Doblin is the president of the Multiple, Multiple Disciplinary Association for the Study of Psychedelics, which is uh, much more easily referred to as MAPS. Uh, now, I'm going to see if I get this right. Rick is a um, PhD student on leave, uh, which does allow him to buy a student ticket here, by the way, um, uh, at the School of Social Policy, Harvard's Univer Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Uh, Rick was a, is a kind of one-man psychedelic lobby, um, and MAPS has been instrumental in the reopening of psychedelic research in the United States, and has also helped initiate great psychedelic conferences both in the Soviet Union and, and in Europe. So let's give uh, him a great round of applause for his Wow, that might be a nicer introduction than I deserve. <laughs> uh, first off, I'd like to say that this event has been a lot like an LSD trip. <laughs> Sailing along, thinking you're doing great, and the next minute, man, you're, you're down. <laughs> and there's not much you can do, but just go through it. <laughs> and so that's, we've come through, now it seems like we're all here, it's quite, I'd like to just really apologize, because I think those of us involved in psychedelics can easily be characterized as a bunch of aging hippies, as a bunch of space cases. I know I have tendencies in those directions anyway. <laughs> and so I think it's incumbent upon us to do better than normal, to do better than average, and we have to be extremely precise and extremely clear. And we obviously didn't do it, so then we just have to be gracious and humble. <laughs> The other thing I have to say is that we're involved in a dialogue with the society at large. And we have CNN here, we have a lot of media here, we have a lot of uh, people in an intimate setting, and yet we're speaking to a larger group. And I think that part of this dialogue is what Matthew was saying, how unjust the circumstances are, how terrible it is for people to be in jail for uh, 10 years. But that's we're not going to get anywhere with that. I think that you only can go so far. It's not going to get anywhere, but you can only go so far by saying, this is unjust, this is too costly. The other side of the debate is, these drugs have incredible value. And not only for us, not only for the us, but for the them. For those people that are dying of cancer that can use LSD to help them deal with their terminal illness in an appropriate circumstance. Not only that, but we can deal with drug abuse and drug addiction through the use of psychedelics. So that we have a major role to play. And I think that I've been impressed with actually the, the media coverage that we've got. First off, how extensive it is, but secondly, how the focus has been on 
the contribution that we'd like to make to the society, not just, you know, let's go out and have a good time, which there's absolutely nothing wrong with, which is why I will not stick to saying that the medical use is the only thing. We need to legalize it for every conceivable use.
I don't know if I should show it, but the second time, I thought, I really like this. This is pretty funny. So, uh, we're talking about uh, balance here, so that's going to add some balance. Now, I'm going to bring up uh, Oscar Janitor, who's inspired us all with this work. somber note about those young people. It's hard to be joyous about that, and I hope we can all do something about it. At least we can try. It feels to me like homecoming, and I'm glad for the privilege to meet among friends. It was here in, in 1978 that after a long silence, uh, Peter Stafford and Bruce Eisner decided to uh, have an LSD conference and invited Albert Hoffman to the United States. And there wasn't expected to be a very large crowd, but it turned out that there were several thousand people, and I can still remember the cordons of police to here and the loudspeakers set up outside. And in 1978, that was quite a surprise to us. At this point, I'd like to say that one of the sights that I saw were young kids with t-shirts, and it said, LSD, the second generation. It gave, it gave me some voice. I have expected to see some t-shirts here tonight that said, LSD, the third generation, perhaps. But it's pretty for fortunate that people have worked in psychedelics can keep themselves young, I hope so. That should make up for it. When Albert Hoffman returned to the United States in uh, 1988 for the inauguration of the Albert Hoffman Foundation, which was a group of people that got together to preserve all the memorabilia, the bits and pieces of all the accounts that went on in the 60s, the things that never saw the light of day, we hope wouldn't perish and we could hand it down to the people in the future who will want to be doing research and understand what was going on in this extraordinary time. And we succeeded in collecting a, an enormous repository of information and we hope to distribute it on a non-profit public basis for those people who want to know more about this subject. It was a surprise to me to find that when I went to the medical library at UCLA, there were just a few tattered books on this subject. And I approached the reference librarian and said, where are the others? And she said, well, we just can't keep those books, he said. They just leave us and disappear. I'm not imputing the honesty of LSD users, but I'm saying something about their uh, the dedication, let's say. And when Albert came here, he stayed at my home in Santa Monica, and we just had a wonderful time. One afternoon, a hot afternoon, he suggested that we go up in the mountains for a little hike, which we did. And we got into the mountains, and it was an exuberant day, and there's four wildflowers were blooming, and it wasn't long before the two of us had taken off uh, part of our clothing. 
So we were roaming the hillsides like two aging satyrs looking at And we were peering out of the bushes at the passerby hikers. Whatever was in their mind, I don't know what they were doing. say that we want a dedication for Albert Hoffman. He called me and said that he would like me to offer this in place of himself. And this was a very great honor. And I put some of my feelings down that I'd like to share with you people. It is fortunate indeed that the man of discovery of LSD, the most powerful effective of consciousness change, that was ever known fell on the shoulders of Albert Hoffman. A wise, sensitive, and prudent man, he was quick to realize the magnitude of his invention on that memorable day of April 16, 1943, and he could relate its remarkable effects to the experiences described by visionaries, madmen, and poets. He has remained steadfast throughout the shifting temper of the times in his belief that LSD is an instrument of immense significance in the investigation of mental and emotional processes, a periscope of the mind that enables one to look over and around walls, a frightening and liberating notion. Andre Mauro reminds us that it is the explorer's duties to break down walls. We of ordinary disposition may find some benefit in opening a door or two. What is on the other side is it is tempting to say everything, all that the power of mind can transect, and an uncanny sense of what lies in the vastness beyond. Of what use is it to alter our obligatory awareness? Perhaps to do what no other creature has had the gift to do, the extraordinary prospect of plotting a saner course for our evolving consciousness. Thank you. Fifty years is a very young age for a child like LSD, which as a pharmaceutical substance, as a substance, will never die. How it will develop in the next 
She gave birth to several of my pharmaceutical children. <laughs> the first was Metagene, which is a medicament used in obstetrics as an aid in childbirth. The second offspring, Fermarination with Mervergon was LSD. Whereas Metagene helps in the birth of a healthy child, LSD can be helpful in the birth of a spiritual child hidden in every human being. Thank you. 
by human beings can in our time no more be the basis, the source of our faith. We must see this our own eyes, feel this all our senses with an open doors of perception. The world as it really is, infinite, miraculous, in, in its eternal here and only if we have experienced ourselves the divine mystery of existence, only then can we understand the truth of the message which the prophets, the saints, the mystics have transmitted to us. Therefore, every need, every path which helps us to evoke our own personal mystic experience is of highest spiritual value and should be, should be available to literally to everybody. You, my dear friends, I am millions all over the world who now commemorate the 50th birthday of Ergot's child. We all testify gratefully that we got valuable help on the day to what was Thursday's death is the end and the ultimate purpose of human life, enlightenment, creative vision, love. And in all these joyful testimonies, testimonies of invaluable help by LSD should be enough to convince the health of the authority finally of the nonsense of uh, prohibition of LSD and of similar psychedelics. Dear friends, I am happy to be with you at this wonderful celebration of the birthday of my problem child. I am happy to be with you, not only on the screen, but with my thoughts, with my heart, and with all of my love. And uh, 
day for you all to contemplate because uh, unfortunately over the years people have in fact tried to forget it and uh, it isn't really very forgettable. starting uh, what were to become, we hope to become, studies with Mescaline, we had to find some suitable words for this. And he suggested that a very beautiful word, Thyrothine. He uh, sent me a little a note to uh, make this mundane world sublime, take half a gram of Thyrothine. I thought that Thyrothine was beautiful, but probably incomprehensible word, and I tried to find an easier one, and I came up with this, uh, to, uh, fall in hell or so angelic, you will need a pinch of psychedelic. And this is how a psychedelic mind manifests, you're a neutral word, how it came up. Now, psychedelics, uh, we found fairly quickly, had great benefits to uh, people in certain conditions, particularly those suffering from alcohol addiction, who require, as most of us probably do, uh, a, but may need all the more, there's an opportunity to uh, consider what's been happening to them and to see its many possibilities. Now, uh, obviously, how to use this becomes a major issue. And uh, Aldous uh, Huxley particularly uh, tried to get her of funds to do this, and unfortunately, we failed. This led him to say that he would uh, uh, never uh, buy a Ford again, but would in future only buy Chevy's. I think he stuck to this, but he felt that the foundation involved could have, it wasn't expensive, we could get people to do it, and uh, unfortunately it failed. So, 50 years later, you are in a sense are still con confronting the difficulties that arose from trying to uh, storm uh, uh, the heights without finding out what one was doing. In other words, undertaking badly planned uh, mountainous expeditions. We, and as usual happens with badly planned expeditions, they fail. And uh, so I hope that in your uh, rides, which I believe you're going to be taking around San Francisco, that you will think about this and find some way to uh, um, not, as I'm afraid happened and has happened in the past, to uh, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, but snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. And so, who wishes to in your meeting and uh, do all you can to uh, forward the cause that Albert took up so bravely, in which he has always fully understood its many implications. And there are many more still to be understood. So, good luck to you all. How's that?
was a tape of, uh, the last tape was uh, Humphrey Osmond. Now I'd like to um, introduce a, a man I met uh, 17 years ago at the uh, LSD Generation Later Conference. Uh, John Beresford uh, is a medical doctor who immigrated from England. He became a U.S. citizen. Um, he started an uh, organization called the Agora Scientific Trust, um, which was an LSD research organization in New York City. Um, he's probably best uh, known in history of uh, the psychedelic uh, world for um, having gone and seen uh, Dr. Hoffman back in 1960 and gotten a gram of uh, LSD. I can't remember the lot number now, but Peter Stafford wrote a, a book called The Magic Gram. It was a gram that turned on uh, many people, including uh, Tim Leary and uh, the Beatles. And but that in seven years, a, an event would take place which would change the history of the world. Okay? She didn't know what it meant. And I think it came to us quite a surprise when um, she met Hoffman and she met the other individuals involved and uh, realized that uh, what she had seen and heard in the vision was actually coming true. I hadn't thought of that uh, memory for quite a while. Well, as Bruce said, um, I was involved in some experimental work with LSD in the early 1960s. And it seemed to me that uh, a very important opportunity had arisen in that um, here was um, substance, a physical substance, which had the extraordinary potential of altering something that wasn't substantial, something um, that for want of a better word is called consciousness. And I kind of took it upon myself to um, do what I could, do what could be done to check into this thing in a, method, in a, in a methodical and, as I hoped, scientific uh, fashion, and uh, that was the origin of this uh, organization that we called the Agro-Scientific Trust that involved people like Michael Hargensen and Gene Houston, and which actually uh, originated before Tim Leary began his work in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay, I wanted to correct Bruce on one matter. I didn't go to uh, Albert to get the one gram of LSD. It was sent to me in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> All you had to do in those days was write off for it and you'd get it. <laughs> so when, when I decided it was a good idea, and that someone had to do it, someone had to undertake this work, I was in a position to type out the necessary letter of request to Sandos. was just across, I was in uh, Manhattan at the time. And um, there was no particular problem. They just sent a gram in the mail. <laughs> And I said, good luck. <laughs> a gram, a gram of LSD. It's an extraordinary thing. It came in a brown tube about three inches long. And uh, actually, I'm wrong. It was have two half gram tubes. Um, and as Bruce indicated, those, that one gram had quite an adventurous history and traveled to different parts of the world. 
Well, I'm not actually here to reminisce today. I wanted to, um, again, reflect on the extraordinary uh, coincidence that took place in 1943, just a hundred days after the activation of the atomic pile in Fermi's lab in Chicago, in that squash court underneath the football field, where the first atomic pile was built slowly, brick by brick, uh, after Pearl Harbor. It took 12 months, and on the 2nd of December 1942, it became active. And Leo Szilard, who was one of the elite physicists who took part in this experimental work, uh, yeah, and the account I read wine was passed around in paper cuts, and they gave a cheer when the thing went active. And Szilard turned to Fermi and said, this will go down as a black day in the history of mankind. It was just about that time, apparently, that Albert Hoffman had this little thought tweaking in his mind, which led, a hundred days later, to the uh, reactivation of his own critical experiment. And uh, that's when that piece of corrective history took place. Well, when I heard from uh, Rick Doblin that we were going to be meeting uh, today to celebrate this great occasion, I thought, mm, there has to be something more than celebrating. Uh, it's going to be, there's going to be something missing if what we're doing is uh, engaging in an act of self-congratulation or um, telling each other stories because of the people who are suffering the effects of the... I told Sigrid the other day, the thought that came to me in the car as I was driving to the airport in Toronto, the Cold War is over, but the old war still goes on. And of course, the old war is currently manifested in the war, war on drugs, the war on innovation, the war on creative thinking, the war on leading-edge ideation, the war on adventurous thinking, the war of the old against the new. And I did decide to come. I really wanted to come all the time, but I didn't get the push to come until I remembered um, what was happening to the prisoners, LSD prisoners in jail. A year before then, sometime last year, I replied to an ad in High Times magazine from a guy called uh, Brian Adams, and he wrote this ad, some of you may have seen it, I don't know how many subscribers to High Times Magazine there are here. <laughs> Quite a few. And uh, so here was this little ad in the personal column. It said, I'm 19 years old, I've been sentenced 10 years in prison for possession of LSD. Uh, the problem is the carrier weight provision. And anyone who wants to learn more about it, please write to me. Give his box number, prison box number, his ID number. Uh, and so I wrote and uh, got a letter back and from this little correspondence started to generate itself and I found myself writing to quite a number of prisoners in United States prisons in state prisons and in federal prisons and I heard some very shocking stories um, stories of barbarity of gross illegal actions on the part of the drug 
Enforcement Administration, uh, which I want to tell you one or two things about. Anyway, the reason I wanted to come tonight was to reiterate, in fact, what uh, people like Matthew have said, um, which is to bring to your attention the iniquity of the carry-away provision as it affects a couple of thousand American men and women, good, decent people, who are victims of this prosecutory zeal on the part of the administration. Previous administration, that's hope. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the prisoners that I've been corresponding with, her name is Nancy Marks. She's given me full permission to quote her. She's been sentenced to a 24-year term of imprisonment. Her husband is in jail for 40 years in a state penitentiary. He will probably get out sooner than she does because he's in a state prison and she's in a federal prison and at a federal prison they don't give parole. They have two children, now 11 and 13, who live under questionable circumstances. And I first got the idea of trying to get some kind of organization together to help the dependents, the children, of families where both parents have been imprisoned. And the parents who are imprisoned for on LSD charges seem to be the most critical um, situation that deserved attention. And uh, so I started to try to furiously think of how to bring people's attention to what was happening to those behind bars and to bring the voice of the unheard out into the open. Well, what another of the, uh, I should mention, I'll just tell you about Nancy first. Okay, so here she is. She's a woman with a degree in education. She's in her 30s. She didn't tell me her exact age. Um, worked 15 years with the handicapped and was caught with a bunch of LSD. Okay? Uh, she was found mailing uh, slips of blotter LSD out to friends or acquaintances, I suppose, one of whom snitched on her and turned uh, into an informant. Three uh, male batches of LSD <coughs> containing, in all, a total of 1,600 doses, in other words, 90 milligrams it comes down to, weighing, I think she said, 16.5 grams of blotter paper. And uh, she was arrested. Agents of this administration, DEA, stormed into her, into her, her house. Um, confronted her in her living room with her child, a boy who was then, I guess, seven or eight. And uh, as the door burst open, she moved to protect him, to shelter him, and was told by this agent who stuck a, stuck a, a gun out at her, uh, one more step and I'll kill you. Uh, she's alone in the room with this child. She's handcuffed, marched up. The child is left all night without supervision screaming his head off, right? This is the kind of people we're dealing with. Uh, she uh, went to a uh, county jail for six months and never saw dark. The light bulb was burning the whole time for interrogation and God knows what else. She was released on bail eventually, went back home, and um, had a curious experience because 
And I have to qualify this by saying that Nancy alleges what I'm going to say, okay? Nancy alleges that um, another informant of the administration, the DEA, was illegally wired, had an illegal wire uh, attached without any court permission, and was this individual was also under indictment, as Nancy was, was told to uh, befriend her, to chat her up, get her in the conversation, and find out what the defense strategy was going to be in her forthcoming trial. This was admitted openly in court, Nancy alleges, and the uh, prosecutor said, well, we knew it was illegal, but we went ahead and did it anyway, implying it's just a drug case, so who cares? Nancy received her sentence of 24 years on account of the weight of the blotter paper. LSD alone, the weight of the LSD alone would have brought her, I think, two and a half years, three years, multiplied by a factor of 10, which you, you have to do if you're taking the carrier weight of the blotter paper into consideration, and you build it up to 24 years. So, at the time of her sentencing, she makes a request. She says, uh, do you think I could uh, serve my term, my jail term um, in California, in that women's prison at Pleasanton, it's about 50 miles to the northeast of here? Do you think I could uh, serve my term? Then the prosecutor objected. He said, oh, no. Uh, that would be far too lenient a punishment for a person of her criminal background. Uh, she uh, should go to Lexington, Kentucky. Um, it would be quite wrong for her to see or have, have access to her kids. Yeah, this is true. Nancy alleges it's true. Okay. And so there she is. She's stuck. Now, she, uh, the judge turned this request down. And in fact, she is at Pleasanton between two rows of razor-shaped, razor-sharp barbed wire, as she describes it, with trucks paroling the perimeter with machine guns night and day. Nancy, I maintain, is one of the best people. She sent me her photo, she sent me her bio. She looks a very nice person. She sounds, she told me that she's always brought up her two kids, to be honest. And now these two children, of course, well, one has to fear for their psychological safety. When you think of what must go on in the mind of an eight or nine-year-old to see his mother threatened with death by a guy pointing a gun at her, Yeah. Well, so there's more to the story and there's no reason for me to elaborate on it tonight, but the question is what are we going to do about it? Another of the prisoners I've been corresponding with, Tim Dean, was um, uh, part of the appeal, he, his case was part of the appeal to the Supreme Court. There was a 1991 appeal to the Supreme Court uh, on, this, on the legality of this uh, carrier weight provision and Tim Dean um, appended his own appeal to the Chapman appeal, which was the primary case that was heard by the Supreme Court. It was uh, turned down by nine, by seven of the nine justices, with dissenting votes by Justices Stevens and Marshall. And the dissenting, the two dissenting judges, observed that uh, the carrier weight provision is irrational and cruel, arbitrary,
Furthermore, and I think this is the most important point, was never intended by Congress. Congress apparently didn't know what they were getting into when they passed the measure which permitted the prosecution and sentencing of individuals on, on the basis of the weight of the blotter paper, which, as I've mentioned, exceeds by a factor of many, many times the weight of the LSD and gets people sentences of 20, 30, 40 years. You can go to a Grateful Dead concert with a strawberry. Am I running out of time? Sorry. Okay, I'll wrap it up. The thing is, I went to the Sentencing Commission uh, hearing in Washington on March 22nd when I spoke to the <coughs> panel of eminent jurists. Um, I think we received a sympathetic hearing. I was by no means the only person speaking. Two-thirds of the cases, two-thirds of the people presenting at that hearing were speaking on drug matters, and two-thirds of the drug cases were LSD cases. So I think it really came to the attention of the Sentencing Commission. And I was told that the chairman of the commission, a, a very gracious gentleman by the name of uh, Mr. William Wilkins, had personally spoken to the US defenders and told them that he was putting his weight behind the move to repeal the carrier weight provision and would see, would do everything that he could to see that Congress uh, followed the same um, approach. So I guess that's what I want to Obviously, there are many different sides to the psychedelic story. There are, the, uh, of course, the, uh, the uh, sad uh, stories of, uh, that Dr. Barris foretold, and there's also the very beautiful uh, stories that we're going to also hear tonight. Um, now, uh, I, it gives me uh, great pleasure to um, introduce uh, our next two guests, because uh, for those of you, I, I imagine some of you know, I, I started a, a group about three years ago called the Island Group. Uh, Island Group was uh, named after a, uh, a novel by Otis Huxley, and uh, uh, Huxley uh, felt that uh, had wrapped up all of his ideas into uh, this uh, novel about uh, how he would like to see society uh, uh, work, and uh, Island Group was started to carry on that vision. Just a little plug for those of you who are interested. We do have uh, a booth outside and newsletters. Uh, but uh, in, in any event, I would like to introduce uh, our next two guests, um, uh, Laura Huxley and Francis Huxley, who will be reading uh, from a, uh, a book called This Timeless Moment. Laura Huxley, of course, uh, was the, uh, uh, is the wife of uh, late Otis Huxley. Uh, and Francis uh, describes himself as a, an anthropologist, uh, an ethno-psychiatrist, and a colleague and friend of uh, Artie Lang, and also, of course, the, uh, the nephew of Otis Huxley. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, this uh, meeting by the two of them.
and I want to tell you why I love this book. Uh, there is only about two or three uh, chapters dedicated to Elizabeth. But after Aldous died, I received so many letters, so incorrect, so ridiculous, so uh, really enraging about uh, his um, connection with Elizabeth. And so and I thought I put down a few uh, facts. So whatever there is in this book is totally factual. And uh, this particular chapter that we read is called Love and Work. It is a, a description of a psychedelic session that was very different from what we did because it was a very short one. It was both four grams of uh, psilocybin and it did not last all day. It was uh, uh, usually we took uh, three days for a psychedelic session. First uh, the day before the day of the session and the following day. This one was short and it was in my studio where I practiced. And um, it was quite different from the other ones. Because uh, after all this took this thyroside, uh, very quickly something happened. We thought that it would happen because it was such a short, such a small, small uh, dosage. But if again to sort of uh, walk up and down the corridor, which usually as you will know, when you take uh, psilocybin or LSD, usually when it's quiet and usually we heard music and so on. Instead, in this case, it began to walk up and down in a sort of uh, disturbed way, very like uh, it was something that was not uh, happening right. And I watched him and I tried to hear what he was saying. What he was saying was uh, confusion, confusion. Well, this was totally different from the other times. <coughs> so uh, I, we had music, of course, probably we had uh, the Bach uh, musical offering. And then after a while, quite suddenly, he sat down and said, everything is all right now. Well, what happened also, the extraordinary thing that happened, is that I did not know, I mean, I forgot that we had a tape recorder going. It's only after several weeks after I said, I found this tape recording of this session, of course it was very extraordinary, very moving to find. And so what we are reading is a, a recorded session of that uh, day. Ice cube out of a flowing river. 
and the concept is that our organism is uh, so often continuously, uh, the organism is always changing, but we are trying to freeze certain things, and it is like a freezing a, a flowing river. So that uh, this uh, ice cube in a flowing river was a sort of a current phrase in those days for us. The pure light. This is the greatest ice cube of all. It's the ultimate ice cube. The pure light. He spoke a great deal about the pure light, and in Ireland he describes it as a knowledgeless understanding. Luminous bliss. So I said that. So you thought that you were going to have that today? Well, now, I can if I want to. <laughs> but I mean, it is very good to realize that it is just, the, so to say, the mirror image of this other thing. It is just this total distraction. I mean, if you can immobilize the total distraction long enough, then it becomes the pure, one-pointed distraction, pure light. What do you mean? If you can immobilize, what do you mean? You can immobilize it, but it isn't the real thing. You can remain for eternity in this thing at the exclusion of love and work. Yeah, but the thing should be love and work. Exactly. I mean, this is why it is wrong. As I was saying, this illustrates that you mustn't make ice cubes out of a flowing river. You may succeed in making ice cubes. This is the greatest ice cube in the world. But you can probably go on for... Oh, you can't go on forever, but for enormous eons, for what appears to be eternity, being in the light. In these later years, Aldous put more and more emphasis on the danger of being addicted to meditation only, to knowledge only, to wisdom only, without love. And just now he had experienced temptation of, to an addiction of even higher order. <coughs> the addiction of being in the light and staying there. Now, if I, I can, if I want to, well, that is really the perfect, uh, it's, it's expressed in other words, to the powerful slang that says, dropping out. It completely denies the facts. It is morally wrong. And finally, of course, absolutely catastrophic. Yes, exactly. Absolutely catastrophic. Those two words are said with the most earnest and profound conviction. The voice is not raised, but each letter is as if sculpted on a shiny block of Carrara marble. And if it remains sculpted and the soul of anyone who hears it, it's a definite statement, statement. There is no private salvation. I don't know how you got all these things, darling. What came into this hard, hard skull of yours? How all these extraordinary ideas come in? <laughs> well, at least this one of the ice cube I remember very well. I was giving LSD to this friend of ours, and I had this feeling, I just was practically seeing a torrent of water, you know, a river. And he was trying to make such a logic out of it, so that he would ensure that all those people had lied. Uh, uh, of course they lied. 
and I had the impression that he was rationalizing water or even trying to freeze a piece of this flowing river and make ice cubes out of it. But you have so many ideas and obviously this terribly hard skull has a hole in it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so. It is certainly very remarkable. Otis, I don't remember if I told you, or I dreamed that I told you, or did I tell you, of that phrase running in my, in my head these days, I am a thousand people. No, you didn't tell me. Yes, but that also doesn't make anything easy. <laughs> no, obviously. And when there is no anchorage anywhere, when to come back to after death, I mean, there will be no anchorage. Oh, I see. But yes. Is that what you were just feeling a while ago? Yes, just a while ago, up and down, up and down, yeah, up and down, in a very confusion. Place. Yes. So, when there will be a thousand people rushing in different directions, I mean, anyhow, mm, you smell, your hair smells the same as acacias. Your head is very solid. <laughs> but because the point is, like <laughs> this. Like this, 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 like and I mean, this is the extraordinary experience. At least there is somebody there who knows there are a thousand other people going in different directions. That there is a fundamental sanity of the world which is always there in spite of the thousand people going in a thousand different directions. And while we are in space and time surrounded by gravity, we are controlled to a considerable extent. But to have an insight into what it is when there isn't any control except this fundamental knowledge, I mean, this is where the bardo is right. The bardo always was referring to the, the better book of the dead, or the after-death experience and the bardo thing. I first heard of this book from Aldous, a few days after Maria, his wife, died. We went to a full walk uh, in the canyon, and I had many questions in my mind, and he told, uh, he answered the question without my asking. He said that for the last few hours of her life, he had spoken to her, encouraging her to go forward, as in the battle. So what is that, I asked. He told me about it, of the, the, of the intermediate plane following bodily death, as in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And the, the, the saying there, it's a very beautiful, actually, it's a very, very boring, because to a person who is dying, the, the people around say, oh, nobly born, go forward, go towards the light. That is a beautiful way of going. I think it should be used for people who are born, or no born. No <laughs> Yes, that would be a good, uh, good salutation for a newborn, no? <laughs>
nobly living, nobly waking up in the morning and going to sleep at night. And of course, as the priest performed <laughs> the bardo is right, you see. You have to be aware of this thing and hang on to it for dear life. Otherwise, you are just completely in the whirlwind. Yes, yes, but there are many people who don't know this. Exactly. But this is why they say we really ought to start preparing for this, for death. And I must say, I think it is terribly important that through this knowledge that we get through these mushrooms or whatever it is, and you understand a little bit of what it is all about. I think the most extraordinary experience is to know that there is all this insanity which is just the multiplication, the caricature of normal insanity that goes on, but that there is a fundamental sanity which you can remain one with and be aware of. This, of course, is the whole doctrine of the Bardo, helping people to be aware of the fundamental sanity which is there in spite of all the terrifying things, and also not really terrifying, but sometimes ecstatic, wonderful things. You mustn't go to heaven as they continue. You mustn't go to heaven. You must not go to heaven. It is just as dangerous. It is temporary. And somehow, you want to hold on to the ultimate truth of things. Ultimate truth of things? Well, I mean, the total light of the world. I suppose, which isn't the here and now we experience, it's of course the mind-body. But when you are released from the body, there has to be some experimental equivalent of the body. Something has to be held on to. I don't know. What? What does one hold on to then? All you can say is one holds to this fundamental sanity, which, as I say, is guaranteed as long as one is in the body by the fact of space, time, gravity, the three dimensions and all the rest of it. Somehow when you get rid of those anchors... Then there is all this uh, phantasmagoric uh, possible illusionary world. Illusionary hell heaven. Yes. That's why they say always pay attention, be attentive. And in Ireland, you know, the first word in Ireland is attention. The last the word. Yeah, the attention, 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 attention. That is the last word too. Yes, the last word certainly. You haven't been paying attention? <laughs> but there is an equivalent of some kind which has to be caught hold of. Otherwise, the world about you is thin and becomes, what's the word, traitors, the world of the restless ghosts. One goes to hell, and then in desperation, one has to rush back and get another body. To hold on. Ah, to hold on again. Well, this obviously is the best thing if one hasn't got the ultimate best. But clearly, they all have said that there is something uh, which is the equivalent, again, in this extraordinary doctrine of Christianity, the resurrection of the body, and ultimately immortality will have something like the body attached to it. I don't know what it means, but obviously one can't attach any ordinary meaning to it, but one sees exactly what they are after, some idea that somehow we have to get an equivalent on a higher level of this anchorage, space and time and gravitation give us, and which can be achieved, 
one has, as I say, in this strange experience, one has the sense that there is this fundamental sanity in spite of all the distraction and preposterous nonsense which is going on and which is relevant to oneself, which has nothing to do in a strange way, although it may seem very, very important. Well, we, we feel it's very, very important. Yes. It is very important if one can, why it is happening, if one can see the outer appearance of it. It is obviously important to look after one's affairs in a sensible way and see their importance in a silly way, perhaps. But if one can, to all this, see this other level of importance, in the light of which a lot of activities will have to be cut down, there will seem to be absolutely no point in undertaking them. Although a great many have to be undertaken, but they will be undertaken in a new kind of a way, with a kind of detachment, and yet with the doing things to one's limit. This, again, is one of the paradoxes, to work to the limit to succeed in what you are doing, and at the same time, to be detached from it. If you don't succeed, well, that's too bad. If you do succeed, don't you? You don't have to gloat over it. This is the whole story of the Bhagavad Gita, somehow to do everything with passion, but with detachment. Passion and detachment. Passion and detachment. Years ago, before I ever heard of this philosophy, with what passion I have not for detachment. What detachment you want for passion? Of course, one always wants to be. In the Bhagavad Gita, the hero, Arjuna, is a great warrior. And he is told by Krishna that he must fight with all his strength and valor, and yet he must be detached from the fight. Don't kill that doesn't look. But then, you did it, don't yeah. Yes. Don't get attached to the fruit of your actions. Yes, One can see what it is. He is not involved, even though he is involved up to the limit. <coughs> what part of him is not involved? But it's no good trying to make an analysis here. As usual, it is the paradox and the mystery. Yes, but even if... Uh, one begins to understand it, that that is the main problem. Hmm, my nose is running. A very good reminder that the greatest philosophy is connected inextricably with running noses. <laughs> one of the things they should have talked about in the Gospel. Obviously, he was on the mountain, the Sermon of the Mount, it must have been very greasy and cold up there. <laughs> Probably his nose did run. <laughs> there is no iconoclastic intention in the voice, you know? It's only a, a chuckling and a reaffirmation of all those convictions. <coughs> everything is connected with everything else. And that we should not forget that no matter what and uh, what high plane of spirituality we dwell, we are still bound by the laws of nature. And running knows. And I am sure that all this also realized at the moment that he has been speaking very seriously and gravely. So it was natural for him, thanks heaven, to 
to light and gravity, you know, with, with charm and humor. So I said that uh, in order, but it is very difficult. How does one prepare for death? I mean, all of it, this seems to me to make it very, very I think that the only way one can prepare for death, you realize that, well, after all, all your psychotherapy is in a sense a preparation for death, inasmuch as you die to these memories which are allowed to haunt you as though they were in the present, that the dead bury their dead. Obviously, the completely healthy way to live is sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. <laughs> you accept this without being obsessed by what is in the past. You die to it. Preparation for ultimate death is to be aware that your highest and most intense form of life is accompanied by and conditional upon a series of small deaths all the time. We have to be dying to these obsessive memories. I mean, again, the paradox is to be able to remember with extreme clarity, but not to be haunted. But even without the memories, there is this composite figure that we are, the composition of so many characters, and if they don't have something to meet on the common ground, which is the body, what do they mean? They have to meet, I suppose, in some, what is called, quote, the spirit, as we normally, on this unconscious, subconscious level, as we meet normally on this unconscious, subconscious level. And then they also meet on the superconscious level, which, of course, completely contains the unconscious. And this would be certainly the teaching of the Bardos, these thousand figures, they can either meet in the wrong way, uh, to the point of distraction through the ice cube, or they can meet through the recognition of the ultimate and the spirit on that level. That's what I always was saying in the beginning. Either there is a meeting in confusions of thoughts and emotions whirling around, or there is a meeting in awareness of the fundamental sanity of the world that is so often mentioned. And this is why they all say you have to work rather hard and try and realize this fact. And one of the ways of realizing it is, after all, in that little Zen flesh, Zen bones, or perhaps, you know, the preparation is through these exercises in consciousness. This sort of leads on to the third layer of consciousness. But then in between two extremes, there's so much leeway. There are too many ways of going wrong. I mean, the best intention people go wrong. Uh, Aldous, would you like to have some soup? Yes, that would be nice. Well, I say go and do it. And that is where tape one of three ended. I haven't digitized tape two yet, but I'll get to it soon, I promise. Unfortunately, uh, tape three didn't appear, so it may be lost. But at least we have this interesting historical record of how psychedelic conferences have evolved over the years. And if I keep my energy level up, then the rest of these old recordings are also going to make their way to you. Until then, keep the old faith and stay high. Namaste, my friends.